0: Hello and welcome back to the Thunder Quack podcast. For this special edition of uh, Amanda makes use of her theater degree and finds ways to otherwise occupy herself by reading Frankenstein. I am your host, Amanda Konkin. Uh, I think is that a title? It's it's it is the title for now. I don't know. I may, might might have better suggestions for things as he often does but I will continue to call it this uh moving forward so we have reached chapters three and four of the first part of Frankenstein and I must say this is where things actually happen um so it's exciting um I hope you are uh, looking forward to getting into a little bit of action uh well I guess not so much action as actual like plot and things happening so it's a little bit less descriptive of uh of leading up to his life and up to what's going on with the monster and and to the actual making of the monster, so I will say this is the, probably the most substantive so far of what we've got. And uh, quite frankly, I'm a little bit um, curious not not to spoil too much as to what you're about to get into and listen to, but um, I'm I'm curious sort of where we go from here because it is like the bulk of, of uh, what I expected the story to be sort of in over the course of two chapters. So I uh, very much look forward to. Uh, hearing your thoughts if you have any about this, uh, but also sharing with you the third and fourth chapters of Frankenstein. So enjoy. Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus chapter three. From this day, natural philosophy, and particularly chemistry, in the most comprehensive sense of the term, became nearly my sole occupation. I read with ardor those works so full of genius and discrimination which modern inquirers have written on these subjects. I attended the lectures and cultivated the acquaintance of the men of science of the university, and I found even in M. Krempt a great deal of sound sense and real information, combined, it is true, with a repulsive physiognomy and manners but not, on that account, the less valuable. In M. Waldman I found a true friend. His gentleness was never tinged by dogmatism, and his instructions were given with an air of frankness and a good nature that banished every idea of pedantry. It was, perhaps, the amiable character of this man that inclined me more to that branch of natural philosophy, which he professed, than an intrinsic love for the science itself. But this state of mind had placed only in the first steps towards knowledge— The more fully I entered into the science, the more exclusively I pursued it for its own sake. That application, which at first had been a matter of duty and resolution, now became so ardent and eager that the stars often disappeared in the light of morning, whilst I was yet engaged in my laboratory. As I applied so closely, it may be easily conceived that I improved rapidly. My ardor was indeed the astonishment of the students, and my proficiency that of the master's. Professor Kremt often asked me, with a sly smile, how Cornelius Agrippa went on, whilst M. Walden expressed the most heartfelt exultation in my progress. Two years passed in this manner, during which I paid no visit to Geneva, but was engaged heart and soul in the pursuit of some discoveries, which I hoped to make. None of those who have experienced them can conceive of the enticements of science. In other studies, you go as far as others have gone before you, and there is nothing more to know. But in a scientific pursuit, there is continual food for discovery and wonder. A mind of moderate capacity which closely pursues one study must infallibly arrive at great proficiency in that study. And I, who continually sought the attainment of one object of pursuit and was solely wrapped up in this, improved so rapidly that at the end of two years I made some discoveries in the improvement of some chemical instruments which procured me great esteem and admiration at the university. When I had arrived at this point and had become as well acquainted with the theory and practice of natural philosophy as depended on the lessons of any of the professors at Ingolstadt, my residence there being no longer conductive to my improvements, I thought of returning to my friends and my native town, when an incident happened that protracted my stay. One of the phenomena which had peculiarly attracted my attention was the structure of the human frame, and indeed any animal endued with life. Whence I often asked myself, did the principle of life proceed? It was a bold question, and one which has ever been considered as a mystery. Yet, with how many things we are upon the brink of becoming acquainted, if cowardice or carelessness did not restrain our inquiries. I resolved these circumstances in my mind, and determined thenceforth to apply myself more particularly to those branches of natural philosophy which relegate to physiology. Unless I had been animated by an almost supernatural enthusiasm, my application to this study would have been irksome and almost intolerable. To examine the causes of life, we must first have recourse to death. I became acquainted with the science of anatomy, but this was not sufficient. I must also observe the natural decay and corruption of the human body. In my education, my father had taken the greatest precautions that my mind should be impressed with no supernatural horrors. I do not ever remember to have trembled at the tale of superstition or to have feared the apparition of a spirit. Darkness had no effect upon my fancy, and a churchyard was to me merely the receptacle of bodies deprived of life, which, from being the seat of beauty and strength, had become food for the worm. Now I was led to examine the cause and progress of this decay and forced to spend days and nights in vaults and charnel houses. My attention was fixed upon every object, the most insupportable to the delicacy of the human feelings. I saw how the fine form of man was degraded and wasted. I beheld the corruption of death succeed to the blooming cheek of life. I saw how the worm inherited the wonders of the eye and brain. I paused, examining and analyzing all the minutia of causation, as exemplified in the change from life to death and death to life, until from the midst of this darkness a sudden light broke in upon me, a light so brilliant and wondrous, yet so simple, that while I became dizzy with the immensity of the prospect which it illustrated, I was surprised that among so many men of genius, who had directed their inquiries towards the same science, that I alone should be reserved to discover so astonishing a secret. Remember, I am not recording the vision of a madman. The sun does not more certainly shine in the heavens than that which I now affirm is true. Some miracle might have produced it, yet the stages of the discovery were distinct and probable. After days and nights of incredible labor and fatigue, I succeeded in discovering the cause of generation and life. Nay, more I became myself capable of bestowing animation upon lifeless matter. The astonishment which I had first experienced on this discovery soon gave place to delight and rapture, After so much time spent in painful labor, to arrive at once at the summit of my desires was the most gratifying consummation of my toils. But this discovery was so great and overwhelming that at the steps by which I had been progressively led to it were obliterated, and I beheld only the result. What had been the study and desire of the wisest men since the creation of the world was now within my grasp. Not that, like a magic scene, it all opened upon me at once, The information I had obtained was of a nature rather to direct my endeavors so soon as I should point them towards the object of my search than to exhibit that object already accomplished. I was like the Arabian who had been buried with the dead and found a passage to life aided only by one glimmering and seemingly ineffectual light. I see by your eagerness and the wonder and hope which your eyes express, my friend, that you expect to be informed of the secret with which I am acquainted that cannot be. Listen patiently until the end of my story, and you will easily perceive why I am reserved upon that subject. I will not lead you on, unguarded and ardent as I then was, to your destruction and infallible misery. Learn from me, if not by my precepts, at least by my example. How dangerous is the acquirement of knowledge, and how much happier that man is who believes his native town to be the world than he who aspires to become greater than his nature will allow. When I found so astonishing a power placed within my hands, I hesitated a long time concerning the matter in which I should employ it. Although I possessed the capacity of bestowing animation, yet to prepare a frame for the reception of it, with all its intricacies of fibers, muscles, and veins, still remained a work of inconceivable difficulty and labor. I doubted at first whether I should attempt the creation of a being like myself, or one of simpler organization, but my imagination was too much exalted by my first success to permit me to doubt of my ability to give life to an animal as complex and wonderful as man. The materials at present within my command hardly appeared adequate to so arduous an undertaking. But I doubted not that I should ultimately succeed. I prepared myself for the multitude of reverses. My operations might be incessantly baffled, and at last my work be imperfect. Yet, when I considered the improvement which every day takes place in science and mechanics, I was encouraged to hope my present attempts would at least lay the foundations of future success. Nor could I consider the magnitude and complexity of my plan as any argument in its impracticability. It was with these feelings that I began the creation of a human being. As the minuteness of the parts formed a great hindrance to my speed, I resolved, contrary to my first intention, to make the being of a gigantic stature, that is to say about eight feet in height and proportionably large. After having formed this determination and having spent some months in successfully collecting and arranging my materials, I began. No one can conceive the variety of feelings which bore me onward like a hurricane in the first enthusiasm of success. Life and death appeared to me ideal bounds, which I should first break through and pour a torrent of light into our dark world. A new species would bless me as its creator and source. Many happy and excellent natures would owe their being to me. No father could claim the gratitude of his child so completely as I should deserved theirs. Pursuing these reflections, I thought that if I could bestow animation upon lifeless matter, I might in process of time, although I now found it impossible, renew life where death had apparently devoted the body to corruption. These thoughts supported my spirits while I pursued my undertaking with unremitting ardor. My cheek had grown pale with study and my person had become emaciated with confinement. Sometimes, on the very brink of certainty, I failed, yet still I clung to the hope which the next day or the next hour might realize. One secret which I alone possessed was the hope to which I had dedicated myself, and the moon gazed on my midnight labors, while, with unrelaxed and breathless eagerness, I pursued nature to her hiding places. Who shall conceive the horrors of my secret toil, as I dabbled among the unhallowed damps of the graves, or tortured the living animal to animate the lifeless clay? My limbs now tremble, and my eyes swim with the remembrance. But then, a resistless and almost frantic impulse urged me forward. I seemed to have lost all soul or sensation but for this one pursuit. It was indeed but a passing trance that only made me feel with renewed acuteness as soon as, the unnatural stimulus ceasing to operate, I had returned to my old habits. I collected bones from carnal houses, and disturbed with profane fingers the tremendous secrets of the human frame. In a solitary chamber, or rather cell, at the top of the house, and separated from all the other apartments by a gallery and staircase, I kept my workshop a filthy creation. My eyeballs were starting from their sockets in attending to the details of my employment. The dissecting room and the slaughterhouse furnished many of my materials, and often did my human nature turn with loathing from my occupation— whilst still urged on by an eagerness which perpetually increased, I brought my work near to a conclusion. The summer months passed, while I thus engaged, heart and soul, in one pursuit. It was a most beautiful season. Never did the fields bestow a more pleasant harvest, or the vines yield a more luxuriant vintage, but my eyes were insensible to the charms of nature. And at the same feelings which made me neglect the scenes around me, caused me also to forget those friends who were so many miles absent and whom I had not seen for so long a time. I knew my silence disquieted them, and I well remember the words of my father. I know that while you are pleased with yourself, you will think of us with affection, and we shall hear regularly from you. You must pardon me if I regard any interruption in your correspondence as a proof that your other duties are equally neglected. I knew well, therefore, what would be my father's feelings. But I could not tear my thoughts from my employment, loathsome in itself, but which had taken an irresistible hold of my imagination. I wished, as it were, to procrastinate all that related to my feelings of affection until the great object which swallowed up every habit of my nature should be completed. I then thought that my father would be unjust if he ascribed my neglect to vice or faultiness on my part, but I am now convinced that he was justified in conceiving that I should not be altogether free from blame." A human being, in perfection, ought always to preserve a calm and peaceful mind, and never to allow passion or a a transitory desire to disturb his tranquility. I do not think that the pursuit of knowledge is an exception to this rule. If the study to which you apply yourself has a tendency to weaken your affections and to destroy your taste for those simple pleasures in which no alloy can possibly mix, then that study is certainly unlawful, that is to say, not befitting the human mind. If this rule were always observed, if no man allowed any pursuit whatsoever to interfere with the tranquility of his domestic affections, Greece had not been enslaved, Caesar would have spared his country, America would have been discovered more gradually, and the empires of Mexico and Peru had not been destroyed. But I forget that I am moralizing in the most interesting part of my tale, and your looks remind me to proceed. My father made no reproach in his letters, and only took notice of my silence by inquiring into my occupations more particularly than before. Winter, spring, and summer passed away during my labors, but I did not watch the blossom or the expanding leaves, sights which before always yielded me extreme delights. So deeply was I engrossed in my occupation. The leaves of that year had withered before my work drew near to a close, and now every day shewed me more plainly how well I had succeeded. But my enthusiasm was checked by my anxiety, and I appeared rather like one doomed by slavery to toil in the mines or any other unwholesome trade than an artist occupied by his favorite employment. Every night I was oppressed by a slow fever, and I became nervous to a most painful degree, a disease that I regretted the more because I had heretofore enjoyed most excellent health and had always boasted of the firmness of my nerves." But I believed that exercise and amusement would soon drive away such symptoms. And I promised myself both of these when my creation should be complete. Okay, so chapter three of Frankenstein. Probably, I mean, as as you go forward, I feel like things might become more of a favorite but this is my favorite so far and i think it's very uh exciting and it sort of leads to what i was talking a little bit in the at the end of chapter two and and uh which is great it, it speaks to me um feeling that this is going to be a, a, a through line of the novel about the the perils of science and what you do with what you do with discovery and uh like the the greatness and 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 the uh the, the moral conundrums that people face. Um, so again, what a beautiful chapter. I, I do like the, um, again, to speak of the prose and and the structure of the story, that we're reminded once again that this is Frankenstein on the boat talking to uh, Walton from the first few letters. Uh, so very interesting if you did uh, skip the, the letters part in the preface, uh, missing sort of that story structure uh, that we are here. Um, uh, uh, faced with again uh, where he is uh, uh, sort of waxing poetic if you will I guess about the um, that uh, if you um, what is it that if the study you apply yourself has a tendency to weaken your affections and to s- destroy your taste for those simple pleasures in which no ally can possibly mix then the study is certainly unlawful so the idea like if, if all you do is the one like again too much too much of one thing can cause terrible uh, terrible things that here they're saying greece would not have been affected and caesar would have spared his country like, it's just a, sort of this beautiful um passion versus science um type of discussion and then him taking a moment in his he's realizing in his reflection upon this um that that beautiful sentence but i forget that i am moralizing in the most interesting part of my tale and your look reminds me to proceed so it's this beautiful uh, communication uh and framing device where you get placed in the story as a listener because very much Frankenstein is is relaying this to somebody that is listening to his tales, uh, his tale of woe and his tale of misery. So it's kind of uh, quite interesting. And, and I'm, I, I sort of hope or feel like as we're going along and listening uh, to the story that we might be having similar reactions because again, the the even though the story is from the early 1800s, there are still so many instances where people will be presented with awe-inspiring uh acts of science or of of um of advancement that terrify us and 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 could lead to to destruction and and terrible things uh, if if manipulated and used incorrectly. So I think I just think that that's fascinating and also a little bit of a moralizing, uh rightly so, in the middle of this uh, narrative. So yeah, I, I don't, I don't know if I want to talk too much about this. Oh, I do have to say, I forgot to, I forgot to apologize for this in the, in the second and uh, or in the first and second chapter, but I don't actually know how to pronounce the name of his school and I apologize. I have just decided, I think, to go along with the, what, what am I saying? Like Ingleslot, but, um, I want to, um, actually, oh, I see, I don't even know where it, I don't even know where it is, uh, set again here so that I can, um, say that, uh, like spell it out for you so that you can like actually like have an idea of it. And so, uh, you know, but, uh, but otherwise hopefully, uh, hopefully it's, it's not too much of a, okay, here we go. I found it. So this is, this is how it's actually spelled. I-N-G-O-L-S-T-A-D-T. So Ingolstadt, maybe? Ingolstadt. Anyways, I'll, I feel like I'm pronouncing the L too much, but Probably a real school. I don't know. I haven't heard of it. Um, Again, there's lots of things that I perhaps should Google as I go through this (laughs) Um, and look. Um, But yeah, beautiful. Discovered the uh, the key to life. I do. I am interested. What an interesting and unique way to not have to explain your science. And I will say, one of the tactics used by many a uh, science fiction writer today or or series where If you don't press too much about the exactness of the science, the science itself doesn't really matter. It's how you use it and how you place it. And as long as you keep the, uh, keep what the science is consistent, then you're okay. And you, and you sort of, um, don't, don't need to know the specifics. I mean, I will say nobody really cared about midichlorians, right? Like it just, you don't have to explain your science. So I'm okay with that. I kind of like that that was a, a nice little, uh, again, because he's telling the story and he's like, you know what? I discovered something. Just believe me that I did. I was able to do it. You don't need to know the specifics because it'll make your life terrible. I think that that's kind of uh, an interesting way to face it, and people still do that today. So good job, uh, Shelley. I-, I have no idea. Maybe they'll explain it later, but I. You don't need to. It's all. It's all. I- it's all I need to know uh, as we go forward. Uh, okay. So that's my reflections on uh, chapter three. Uh, very interesting. So now that he uh, can bring. Uh, people back to life or 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 create life rather uh let's see what happens next frankenstein or the modern prometheus chapter four it was on a dreary night of november that i beheld the accomplishment of my toils with an anxiety that almost amounted to agony i collected the instruments of life around me that i might infuse a spark of being into the lifeless thing that lay at my feet It was already one in the morning. The rain pattered dismally against the panes, and my candle was nearly burnt out, when by the glimmer of the half-extinguished light, I saw the dull yellow eye of the creature open. It breathed hard, and a convulsive motion agitated its limbs. How can I describe my emotions at this catastrophe? Or how delineate the wretch whom, with such infinite pains and care, I had endeavored to form? His limbs were in proportion, and I had selected his features as beautiful. Beautiful! Great God! His yellow skin scarcely covered the work of muscles and arteries beneath. His hair was of a lustrous black and flowing, his teeth of a pearly whiteness. But these luxuriances only formed a more horrid contrast with his watery eyes that seemed almost of the same color as the dun white sockets in which they were set, his shriveled complexion, and straight black lips. The different accidents of life are not so changeable as the feelings of human nature. I had worked hard for nearly two years for the sole purpose of infusing life into an inanimate body. For this, I had deprived myself of rest and health. I had desired it with an ardor that far exceeded moderation. But now that I had finished, the beauty of the dream vanished, and breathless horror and disgust filled my heart. Unable to endure the aspect of the being I had created, I rushed out of the room and continued a long time traversing my bread chamber, unable to compose my mind to sleep. At length lassitude succeeded to the tumult i had before endured and i threw myself on the bed in my clothes endeavoring to seek a few moments of forgetfulness but it was in vain i slept indeed but i was disturbed by the wildest dreams i thought i saw elizabeth in the bloom of health walking in the streets of Ingolstadt. delighted and surprised i embraced her but as i imprinted the first kiss on her lips they became livid with the hue of death her featured appeared Her features appeared to change, and I thought that I held the corpse of my dead mother in my arms. A shroud enveloped her form, and I saw the grave worms crawling in the folds of the flannel. I started from my sleep with horror. A cold dew covered my forehead. My teeth chattered, and every limb became convulsed. When, by the dim and yellow light of the moon, as it forced its way through the window shutters, I beheld the wretch, the miserable monster whom I had created. He held up the curtain of the bed, and his eyes, if eyes they may be called, were fixed on me. His jaws opened, and he muttered some inarticulate sounds, while a grin wrinkled his cheeks. He might have spoken, but I did not hear. One hand was stretched out, seemingly to detain me, but I escaped and rushed down the stairs. I took refuge in the courtyard belonging to the house which I inhabited, where I remained during the rest of the night walking up and down in the greatest agitation, listening attentively, catching and fearing each sound as if it were to announce the approach of the demonical corpse to which I had so miserably given life. Oh, no mortal could support the horror of that continence. A mummy, again endued with animation, could not be so hideous as that wretch. I had gazed on him while unfinished. He was ugly then, But when those muscles and joints were rendered capable of motion, it became a thing such as even Dante could not have conceived. I passed the night wretchedly. Sometimes my pulse beat so quickly and hardly that I felt the palpitation of every artery. At others, I nearly sank to the ground through languor and extreme weakness. Mingled with this horror, I felt the bitterness of disappointment. Dreams that had been my food and pleasant rest for so long a space were now become a hell to me. And the change was so rapid the overthrow so complete. Morning, dismal and wet, at length dawned, and discovered to my sleepless and aching eyes the church of Ingolstadt, its white steeple and clock, which indicated the sixth hour. The porter opened the gates of the court, which had that night been my asylum, and I issued into the streets, pacing them with quick steps, as if I sought to avoid the wretch whom I feared ever turning of the street would present to my view. I did not dare return to the apartment which I inhabited, but felt impelled to hurry on, although wetted by the rain, which poured from a black and comfortless sky. I continued walking in this matter for some time, endeavouring by bodily exercise to ease the load that weighed upon my mind. I traversed the streets without any clear conception of where I was or what I was doing. My heart palpitated in the sickness of fear, and I hurried on with irregular steps, not daring to look about me. Like one who, on a lonely road... Doth walk in fear and dread, and having once turned round, walks on, and turns no more his head, because he knows a frightful fiend, doth close behind him tread. Continuing thus, I came at length opposite to the inn at which the various diligences and carriages usually stopped. Here I paused. I knew not why, but I remained some minutes with my eyes fixed on a coach that was coming towards me from the other end of the street. As it drew nearer, I observed that it was the Swiss diligence. It stopped just where I was standing, and on the door being opened, I perceived Henry Clerval, who, on seeing me, instantly sprung out. My dear Frankenstein, exclaimed he, how glad I am to see you! How fortunate that you should be here at the very moment of my alighting! Nothing could equal my delight on seeing Clerval. His presence brought back to my thoughts my father, Elizabeth, and all those scents of home so dear to my recollection. I grasped his hand and in a moment forgot my horror and misfortune. I felt suddenly, and for the first time during many months, calm and serene joy. I welcomed my friend, therefore, in the most cordial manner, and we walked towards my college. Clerval continued talking for some time about our mutual friends and his own good fortune in being permitted to come to Ingleslott. You may easily believe, he said, how great was the difficulty to persuade my father that it was not absolutely necessary for a merchant not to understand anything except bookkeeping. And indeed, I believe I left him incredulous to the last, for his constant answer to my unwearied entreaties was the same as that of the Dutch schoolmaster in the Vicar of Wakefield. I have 10,000 florins a year without Greek. I eat heartily without Greek. But his affection for me at length overcame his dislike of learning, and he, was, and he has permitted me to undertake a voyage of discovery to the land of knowledge. It gives me the greatest delight to see you. But tell me how you left my father, brothers, and Elizabeth. Very well and very happy. Only a little uneasy that they hear from you so seldom. By the by, I mean to lecture you a little upon their account myself. But my dear Frankenstein, continued he, stopping short and gazing full in my face, I did not before remark how very ill you appear, so thin and pale. You look as if you had been watching for several nights. You have guessed right. I have lately been so deeply engaged in one occupation that I have not allowed myself sufficient rest, as you see. But I hope, I sincerely hope, that all these employments are now at an end, and that I am at length free. I trembled excessively. I could not endure to think of and let far less allude to the occurrences of the preceding night. I walked with a quick pace, and we soon arrived at the college. I then reflected, and the thought made me shiver, that the creature whom I had left in my apartment might still be there, alive and walking about. I dreaded to behold this monster, but I feared still more that Henry should see him. Entreating him, therefore, to remain a few minutes at the bottom of the stairs, I darted up towards my own room. My hand was already on the lock of the door before I recollected myself. I then paused. A cold shivering came over me. I threw the door forcibly open, as children are accustomed to do when they expect a specter to stand in waiting for them on the other side, but nothing appeared. I stepped fearfully in. The apartment was empty, and my bedroom was also freed from its hideous guest. I could hardly believe that so great a good fortune could have befallen me, but when I became assured that my enemy had indeed fled, I clapped my hands for joy and ran down to Clerval. We ascended into my room, and the servant presently brought breakfast, but I was unable to contain myself. It was not joy only that possessed me. I felt my flesh tingle with excess of, sensitiv- of sensitiveness, and my pulse beat rapidly. I was unable to remain for a single instant in the same place. I jumped over the chairs, clapped my hands, and laughed aloud. Clarival at first attributed my unusual spirits to joy on his arrival, but when he observed me more attentively, he saw a wildness in my eyes for which he could not account and my loud, unrestrained, heartless laughter frightened and astonished him. My dear Victor, cried he, what for God's sake is the matter? Do not laugh in that manner. How ill you are! What is the cause of all of this? Do not ask me, cried I, putting my hands before my eyes, for I thought I saw the dreaded specter glide into the room. He can tell. Oh, save me, save me. I imagined that the monster seized me. I struggled furiously and fell down in a fit. Poor Clerval. What must have been his feeling? A meeting which he anticipated with such joy so strangely turned to bitterness. But I was not the witness for his grief, for I was lifeless and did not recover my senses for a long, long time. This was the commencement of a nervous fever which confined me for several months. During all that time, Henry was my only nurse. I afterwards learnt that, knowing my father's advanced age and unfitness for so long a journey, and how wretched my sickness would make Elizabeth, he spared them the grief by concealing the extent of my disorder. He knew that I could not have a more kind and attentive nurse than himself, and firm in the hope he felt of my recovery, he did not doubt that, instead of doing harm, he performed the kindest action that he could towards them. But I was in reality very ill. And surely nothing but the unbounded and unremitting attentions of my friend could have restored me to life. The form of the monster on whom I had bestowed existence was forever before my eyes, and I raved incessantly concerning him. Doubtless, my words surprised Henry. He at first believed them to be the wanderings of my disturbed imagination, but the pertinacity with which I continually recurred to the same subject persuaded him that my disorder indeed owed its origin to some uncommon and terrible event." By very slow degrees and with frequent relapses that alarmed and grieved my friend, I recovered. I remember the first time I became capable of observing outward objects with any kind of pleasure. I perceived that the fallen leaves had disappeared and that the young buds were shooting forth from the trees that shaded my window. It was a divine spring and the season contributed greatly to my convalescence. I felt also sentiments of joy and affection revive in my bosom. My gloom disappeared, and in a short time I became as cheerful as before I was attacked by the fatal passion. Dearest Clerval," I exclaimed, how kind, how very good you are to me. This whole winter, instead of being spent in study, as you promised yourself, has been consumed in my sick room. How shall I ever repay you? I feel the greatest remorse for the disappointment of which I have been the occasion. But will you forgive me? You will repay me entirely if you do not not discompose yourself, but get well as fast as you can. And since you appear in such good spirits, I may speak to you on one subject, may I not? I trembled. One subject? What could it be? Could he allude to an object on whom I dared not even think? Compose yourself, said Clerval, who observed my change of color. I will not mention it if it agitates you. But your father and cousin would be very happy if they received a letter from you in your own handwriting. They hardly know how ill you have been, and are uneasy at your long silence. Is that all? My dear Henry, how could you suppose that my first thought would not fly towards those dear, dear friends whom I love, and who are so deserving of my love? If this is your present temper, my friend, you will perhaps be glad to see a letter that has been lying here for some days for you. It is from your cousin, I believe. Okay, chapter four. The most substantive chapter, I think, in all of the novel. Because we get to meet the monster and we learn Frankenstein's name. I think that this is the first time that we hear him called Frankenstein by his buddy, uh, Clarival? Is that, yeah, I think that's how you say uh, his name. So kind of an interesting, um, a very, uh, plot-heavy chapter. This one, uh, I'll go back to, uh quoting those uh, really awesome footnotes that are included here to give us a little bit more context for the novel. Um, and right actually into the opening here of the of the chapter, uh, where it says um, that it was a dreary night of November that I beheld the accomplishment of my toils. There's actually a footnote here saying that it would be November of uh, 1793. So, Thanks for that context because I hadn't been paying attention to the specific, specificity of dates because they're not actually noted anywhere here. Um, so that's exciting. And then um, another thing interesting in the footnotes is the literary allusions that they're talking about that are, that are throughout this chapter. And, and quite interesting. So two uh, sources that had been used previously in other chapters that we'd sort of glossed gl- over but I didn't really talk that much about uh, was... Uh, sh- uh, f- Milton, so Paradise Lost, has been talked about a couple times in the book so far. And then also Rime of the Ancient Mariner. So both of those sources being used again in this chapter. Um, One more as a literary allusion. So um, in the dream that, uh, so Frankenstein awakes from uh, from a start. In his dream, there's actually a little footnote here where it's sort of saying, uh, it's like a, an allusion a little bit to um, Adam's dream and awakening in Milton's Paradise Lost here, but also um, Osmond's dream in Matthew Gregory Lewis's The Castle Spectre. Uh, Spectre. So kind of just interesting um, thoughts uh, to to think about how it's relevant and, and, and Shelley's inspirations or perhaps uh, some other um, literary parallels that we find in the text in this chapter. Uh, and also then the actual poem. And I, again, it's it's a weird thing to convey because i hope that i was able to sort of pause enough and and give the uh the text uh going from prose to poetry a bit of that of that um uh denotation in my in my voice changing but there is that that quote here of actually um coleridge's uh ancient mariner so it actually is a, a section of the text the one uh, where he's uh walking through the streets and like one who on a lonely road doth walk in fear and dread and having once turned round, walks on and turns no more his head uh, because he knows a frightful fiend doth close behind does close doth close behind him tread so i think i butchered it a little bit when i was saying it originally and i just butchered it a little bit again now but uh rhyme of the ancient mariner so we first uh, actually had rhyme of the ancient mariner back in the uh, letters so i think it's more something walton was talking about. And I don't know if people took English Lit in high school, but I remember loving English literature and actually reading Rime of the Ancient Mariner. I don't remember that much about Rime of the Ancient Mariner, except for the thing that they kill the Albatross and that actually winds up being like really a, a bad thing. And they, I think they all die at sea. And anyways, but it's a very long poem, but it's very, it's very beautiful. And it's kind of, anyways, that's all I really remember about it. But uh, obviously very uh, close to to uh, Shelley as a as a reference since it is used so many times in the book so far um, so I just thought that was interesting to talk a little bit about those footnotes and give a little bit more context uh, for what's going on here um but uh I don't know I, I guess the most interesting things I had already talked about I like that uh he gets called actually Frankenstein for the first time which I think is cool and that he sees his friend but now I'll talk a bit about the actual story itself so him abandoning the monster. So he's made, he's given life and then immediately fears it. And it's such a, it's such a fascinating turn. And what I think the rest of the story is, right? It's that, and again, I haven't, just from popular culture and what I know about Frankenstein, and I think I'll have more insight, obviously, as I get further in the book, but that being at the core of uh, the conundrum and, and, sort of the, the, the thematic nature of, of some of the storytelling in here is personal responsibility. Like what, if you, if you take something in your own passions and your own, uh, desires and you, and you push for it as, as hard as you can, and it turns out to be contrary to what you wanted or that you get scared of it, that it is still your responsibility or, or part of your own, uh, um, Yeah, just your responsibility to make sure that you uh, that you that you uh, like follow through and and, uh, take ownership over it. So the abandonment of his creation is what leads in many ways to his misery and downfall. And this idea of nature versus nurture, I think a little bit, which is kind of interesting and plays into this a little bit. Uh, I don't know. I just thought of it off the top of my head and maybe it does. Maybe other people have contrary opinions, but I think that that's kind of interesting to think about as well. It's not just how the creature was created, but what happened after the creature was created and without love and nurturing or without support or even just someone around to guide it, uh, how, how easily it could turn or become a, a a beast there's i don't i don't know where this is from i found it on the internet i feel i haven't read it recently and i'm sure that it's quoted somewhere properly so that i can say who uh who has said it you know what it might be mary shelley quite frankly um but where or where you where they say that knowledge is knowing that frankenstein is the scientist but wisdom is knowing that Frankenstein is the monster or something like that. I don't think that's the actual quote, but just you get that, right? That Frankenstein really at it, at its core is about Frankenstein, the scientist who's making these terrible choices and is kind of this, I don't know, this person that, that created something great and was quite um, smart and did have a lot of really... Uh, um, impressive qualities but at the end of the day he his fatal flaw or the thing that that uh that led to his downfall was not related to his scientific prowess it was actually in his humanity or his lack thereof uh and his his uh not connecting with the creation or just abandon like his abandonment of his creation i think I hope that's what I'm getting from it right now. Uh, I'm curious. I so I stopped at um, so chapter four does end uh, where uh, um, Clerval says that there is a a letter for him, um, and so the next chapter I see is um, is going to be a letter basically um, from his cousin. So I'll, I'm excited to like read that and, and get a little bit more into uh, Frankenstein's humanity and the people that connect him uh, because you really do see that that part of what makes Frankenstein who he is is knowing that he needs these that his connections and his family and those things that shape him really bring him back and him saying that he was sick and ill and the only thing that sustained him was his comfort and his friend that that stayed there and was and was with him through this trying time or else he would have perished it's just a very interesting parallel from his own life so anyways thanks again for uh, joining me for this uh journey through Frankenstein chapters three and four I'm excited to continue on uh, the next few chapters of this first part. And uh, I'd love to hear what it is that you think about the novel or these few chapters. So feel free to reach out. Uh, You can contact me on social media. I'm at Akonkin, A-K-O-N-K-I-N. That's Twitter. And you can uh, add an 86 to that for Instagram. And you can also contact us directly or contact me directly um, uh, through the Thunderquack podcast's official email address, which is thunderquacknetwork at gmail.com. Uh, so I'd love to know what you think. Uh, hopefully a little bit of an interactive back and forth can happen um, as we get further in and, and finish up uh, part one of uh, this novel. Uh, so again, look forward to hearing uh, what it is that you think, and I will talk to you next time. Bye. Well,